0: Head to my website, SimonMundy.com or Amazon, Waterstone, Smiths, places like that to get your copy.
1: Quality sleep is essential. That's
0: why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort.
1: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss.
0: Hello, Simon here. Welcome to this week's conversation, in which I explore some of the lessons we can all take from the approach, attitude, and outlook. Of Roger Federer. My guest is Christopher Clary, arguably the top tennis journalist in the world who writes for the New York Times. And he's also written a book on Roger called The Master, The Brilliant Career of Roger Federer. Roger not playing at this year's US Open tennis tournament, which is taking place now as I speak because of knee surgery And there are question marks as to whether we'll ever see him back on court at one of the majors again, although fingers crossed, of course. It's not all bad, though. Roger has just become the first ever tennis billionaire. And while he may soon be overtaken by Novak Djokovic on the all-time Grand Slam winners list, you could still argue that no one has had such a big impact on the game as Roger Federer. So in this episode, we talk about what anyone can learn from Roger, and Chris shares many stories to illustrate federer's lessons including about treating people with empathy and authenticity taking care of your own business planning spontaneity and time to recharge and choosing to let go of disappointment and resentment we also talk about what traits roger took from his parents robert and lynette and how they helped nurture his talent and we discuss how Roger has that rare ability to treat all moments somewhat equally. Whether it's playing a huge match on Wimbledon Centre Court or doing some of the less enjoyable parts of the job, Roger relishes it all. And that is something we can certainly all learn from. Now, this week's conversation is chock full of lessons. They come thick and fast. So let's get to them. Here is Christopher Clary.
1: Chris Clary, how are you? I am well. My baby's out there in the world with this book. took me a long time to write it, and it's, it's definitely been interesting and, and gratifying mostly, but also sometimes, you know, tough. People are going to react to it in different ways, and but I'm doing fine. Thank you. And it's been a new experience. I'm used to writing thousand-word newspaper columns, so it's a big change, Simon.
0: Congratulations. I've never been so quick to snap up a book in my life. Put it that way. I'm a tennis nerd of the highest order, huge Roger Federer fan. It wasn't work reading this book. <laughs> um, before we dive into and dissect some of the lessons of Roger Federer's life and career, I, I want to touch actually quickly on you, as it were, because you have been described as the doyen of tennis journalists, okay? Billie Jean King, no less, calls you the best in the business. Chris Evert, Jim Courier, legends of the game have all lined up to pay a personal tribute to you and your standing in tennis journalism. And I want to say, I've obviously had a few dealings with you, certainly latterly. You're very welcoming, very friendly, very helpful. And I know as well, I've spoken to a couple of people in the wider tennis industry. They speak highly of you as well. It almost relates a little to Roger, this, because I think to be at the top of one's profession and yet remain humble and remain open to helping others, not perhaps fawning at people above you and looking down on people below you, all that kind of stuff. And to me, you have that quality in spades, Chris, and it's something I really appreciate. Well,
1: that's wonderful to hear, Simon. It's a nice morning already here in, in Boston because of this. This is great. I'm <laughs> heading to the US Open later today. I'm going to have a zip in my step now. Thank you very much. <laughs> now, Let me say one thing, Simon, though, about that. I started in this business 35 years ago. It was very Collegial then, there was always that undercurrent of competitiveness, and that's just the way it is. It's our business, where, you know, competing against the guys you have dinner with for the story. It's a strange dynamic anyway, or the guy you're you know, sitting next to at the desk. You're very in close proximity to your competitors, but they're also people you have a lot in common with. But I would say for me, what really made a difference when I was early in my career was a guy named Bud Collins. Not everybody who's listening to this will, will probably remember Bud at this point, but he was the real doyen of tennis writers yeah. for a long time, at least in my country, and he was a guy who was incredibly welcoming to everybody. He had so much knowledge, he never turned anybody away. I saw him on tight deadlines, like turn his head and answer questions about you know, the history of the game, you know, while he was typing, basically. Just a wonderful guy, I love the game. For a lot of us that came in at that point, that was our role model and our this guy who was on top of the profession, couldn't have been more welcoming, or accessible. I don't think I've come close to that standard, I think I have my faults and I get more addled on deadline than Bud ever did, but I've, I've always kept him in mind. And I think it's important to remember him and people like him who really were very unselfish about sharing the pearls of wisdom that they had acquired.
0: I think that's a really good point. And I remember early in my career, some people who took the time to just do little things like perhaps give me a call, make me believe that a career in journalism and tennis was always where I wanted to go uh, was possible. And a bit like you with bud i've never forgotten those people i now always keep them in mind and want to pay it forward what's that old saying you know the people you meet on the way up are the people you meet on the way down you know (laughs) i just i just i just think that that sense of being open and kind to others in any industry is vitally important and i think this does relate to roger a bit roger has that ability to make you feel on his level doesn't he
1: Yeah, he has an ability to, and even rival agents, people who don't represent him will say this, so you know it's got to be true, because their last thing they want to do is compliment Roger, I suppose. But they'll talk about his ability to sort of make you feel like you're the only person who matters at that moment, and maybe even the only person in the room. He's all focused on you. I mean, tennis players tend to have pretty good focus in general. You need to succeed in the sport with that. It's important but he's exceptional at it. And I think there's an element of nature there and there's an element of nurture there for sure in that. But I've seen it again and again. I've seen him walk into rooms with the media or places that I've been with him on interviews or places like that. And he's able to really just get the eye contact, give that person his full energy and empathy, if you will, which is one of his real signature traits and give that person a feeling like this is really making his day, (laughs) even though you're probably not. But he gives you that feeling, which is, I think, remarkable.
0: The thing I think with Roger, in terms of interviews, the kid in me will be excited when he comes up. But then when he's sat in front of me, he's as normal as you like, actually. And I forget that he is Roger Federer. And I don't want to put anyone on a pedestal, actually, to be honest with you, anyway, because people just are people. He is human, just like you and I. And any champion who loses sight of that, it can be a bit sad and a bit tragic. And it's only when he always stand up on the balcony and there'll be 200 people gathered below and we will start cheering and clapping that you suddenly snap back into reality and remember it's Roger Mm, Federer. mm
1: -hmm. You know how I define it? I'd say big athletes in general, and I've done a lot of different sports, they're kind of bringing themselves to you. You are getting them. But with Roger, you get the sense that maybe that's how it begins, but then quickly it becomes about the exchange and it feels uh, interactive in a way that a lot of other interviews with superstar athletes do not. And he really seems like, because of his curiosity and that empathy, I think he's able to uh, subvert a bit of his own ego. And he likes to be in that position where he's you know, the alpha male. I'm sure he does. But yeah. in those contexts of an interview, he's able to make it into a conversation in a way that very few superstar athletes are able to do.
0: Let's dive into some of the lessons. And I've already actually touched on one, remembering that whatever you achieve, whatever your status, and we live in a world of status... You are no better or worse than anyone else. He does retain that. And something uh, that you talk about was when he was at Nike HQ and he just left hmm. and all of a sudden was like, ah, I got to go back. So do you want to pick this story up?
1: Yeah, there's a director of tennis uh, in the US, Mike Nakajima, who told me that for the book. It's, it's a great story. And I guess there was a Roger Federer day. You know, Roger was front and center at Nike. This was yeah, probably... 2010-11 in that range there and so he was very much still on top of the game in a lot of ways so he came in there and basically they were running around doing different things at Nike it's a campus you have buildings all over the place and he was uh walking with Nakajima someplace after a meeting and out of this building or across the grounds and he goes up oh, I gotta go back and Mike thought well what'd you do forget your cell phone or something like that he goes no I forgot to say thank you to these guys that helped us with this uh shoot demonstration and Mike's Sort of went, what? (laughs) So they went running back to the building, went down back through security and the mag and bag and all that. And he went back and said, thank you to these people. And then, then left. And Mike said, who does that? Who among among Mike, Mike, other clients, some of whom I like quite a lot would do that. And he said, nobody. And then, you know, later in the day, he was playing around with, you know, giving out the towels at the Nike gym and serving coffee on his little cart to all the employees saying, hi, I'm Rogers. if They didn't know who he was. And there's an element of theater to that part, but it's also indicative of the guy that he would embrace that situation and that role and enjoy that. And I think he's great when he knows that he's being venerated and adored and and appreciated, which probably happens to him quite a lot. And then he's very comfortable playing that role of deflating it all. It's been a nice role for him to be in. I'm not sure how how he was earlier in his career when he was much more in the balance about where his legacy and everything else and his status was. But from what I've seen, I've covered him so closely from. 2003 or so it's just been really a lot of those little moments where he's and you hear from the players on the rise too they'll be walking down the hallway and suddenly roger was like hey good luck today they look around going who are you talking to you're talking to me (laughs) (laughs) and i've heard too many of those stories for them not to be indicative of something kind of cool
0: we do work in an industry where there are some egos knocking around But I do think that is the remembering that you are, you know, whatever you've achieved. Okay, that's something to be proud of, but it it doesn't change who you are, really. And as a lesson, I think this is something to keep in mind. Yes, enjoy the fruits of your labor, as they might say, but never believe that that makes you better than anyone else. Would you go along with that?
1: it's nice to be important, but it's more important to be nice. I mean, that's that's a cliche, but I think Roger has, you know, taken it to heart a lot of times and he, he says it a lot. So he must uh, think about it a lot. And I feel that is important. And I think it's also how you treat that whole range of people in your workplace or in your people you come across, whether you're on a hiking trail in Switzerland and you kind of go by and you greet somebody as you go by and they know who you are and you know that they know who you are and that's okay. And you give them that little moment or you're, you know, the, you're in the locker room and, guys will just toss their towels and their equipment on the ground and leave it to the winds and the attendants to take care of. And Roger never does that. So there's a certain respect and that obviously comes from the way you're raised. That's got to be an acquired behavior. And that's the parents saying, no, you're going to do it this way. That's his coaches. When he ripped the screen and, uh, Bill bien with his, um, racket toss when he had this bad temper issues, it's like, you're going to get up tomorrow at 6am and you're going to do it for a week, even though you usually get up at 11am and we know you're not a morning person and you're going to clean the toilets for a week. It seems like those moments when Roger could have maybe turned into a prima donna, I mean, they're all entitled to some degree. It's an amazing amount of entitlement that goes on because you're being catered to. And when you're a prodigy and you, you know, global sport, you're going to be catered to. So it's a matter of how you understand that catering and how you process it. And I think that enough key moments in Roger's life with the character he already had, which was probably a good character, he got the lesson given to him at the right time. And I think Rafa is very similar. You know, Nadal, yeah. to be fair, has is, is a very similar approach to this. And it's become yeah. almost normal in this era, but really, <laughs> it's not yeah. normal compared to right. what preceded them and probably what will succeed them. I don't think these guys are going to necessarily change this this culture that predominates you know, forever by their great behavior. No.
0: I've been lucky enough, actually, to had some interesting encounters with uh, Robert and Lynette. I've covered Wimbledon just a quick backstory actually i used to go there as a kid because i lived not far from there i worked there taking out the trash then i washed glasses and then i served behind a bar but i've covered wimbledon since 2007 but there was one year i walked from wimbledon station to the championships and you walk over the hill and every morning robert was walking the other way as i was walking this way and i mean he must have dreaded it after about the seventh day (laughs) because i would always stop and have a chat and he has that openness and sort of gentle warmth, I would say. And then Lynette's got the sparkle, doesn't mm, she? She's, mm. she's really got the charisma. So you can see where Roger's got a bit of both from both of them.
1: Yeah, my memory of, of Robert, the strongest one, it was in Argentina, actually. The way the book opens is this opening scene of um, being in the car with Roger after midnight, driving through the streets of Buenos Aires, going from the exhibition where he plays Del Potro, and it's like this rock star moment which to me seemed like it must be his routine, but he was saying it wasn't. And he was like a kid up against the glass, checking it all out and just seemed wide-eyed with wonder at this South American adventure, which was, you know, he's already in his early thirties. It's quite something. And so I was struck by that. so we end up going back to the hotel and I don't get to this part in the book, but he gets in and then he and his agent, Tony Gossett, to come back and say, well, why don't you come in? So I go in and Robert's there with him. So they're all in the lobby of this hotel. It's two in the morning or 1.30 in the morning at this point. Robert Federer is just talking about travel, how much he's just loving being down in South America, how cool it is to be following his son. And there's this sort of boyish enthusiasm for the road and for Mm -hmm. all that experience and very spontaneous and very unguarded and very cool. And then you realize, okay, so why has Roger still got that joie de vivre and love of the, the road and that wanderlust, you know, comes right from there. And you're right, his mom has got that great energy and charisma and sort of quick witted uh yeah, spark yeah. likes to challenge you in the conversation. Very fun. Yeah. So he's yeah, you know yeah. he grew up in a lively household. He left it early, but think about it. Roger genetically would not exist if it weren't for that wanderlust because Bobby was yeah, in yeah. Switzerland growing up, you know, a chemical engineer by training. He could have hung close to home, gone to Italy, <laughs> kept it a little bit less jet laggy or a little less distance. He goes to South Africa. And he thought about going to Australia and he meets Lynette. And the course of Federer family history and tennis <laughs> history has changed.
0: Yeah, Absolutely. Quick lesson then, I think, in terms of parenting. So in this country, you often hear about tennis being such a middle-class sport, and that is why perhaps they don't have the same killer instinct as they do, let's say, from Eastern Europe or other places like South America. Roger came from a comfortable background, but the way he was treated by Lynette and Robert was, this is down to you. You know, we're not going to pressure you. We will support you, but it needs to come from you. That attitude of parenting, I think there's a lot to be said for that.
1: I think that's right. And I think you look at a lot of champions, they do need to sort of expatriate themselves from their families a lot of times because they have to. Look at Sharapova, who obviously went with her father at a young age, but left her mother behind and ridiculously young age. Look at Murat Safin, who I talk about in the book, great Russian player, had to leave home in Russia and his family by himself, basically in his very early teens. Look at Novak. Djokovic, similar thing. In Roger's case, no way was it imposed. It was just seemed like it was the right path for him. And that really was a pivotal maturation moment where he had kind of his off to the academy moment that a lot of other prodigies have had in tennis and has made them stronger probably. But it was, you're right. None of it was imposed. He decided to do it and his parents made sure he knew that whatever he did, he had to take ownership of it. And there's a lesson in all that for us too, I think in the sense that whatever you're going to do, it better come from inside of you.
0: I've already mentioned that, treating everyone equally and remembering that. As well, I touched on how I've appreciated your willingness to reach out and help out. And Roger had this too, in terms of Stan Wawrinka, who who we forget because he's a three-time Grand Slam champion. I think of him very much in that generation. But actually, he looked at Roger as his big brother, didn't he, when he was starting out? And I know that Stan's very grateful for the support that Roger gave him in terms of scouting opponents, sharing a trainer with him, et cetera, that helping others out. That's obviously a value of yours as well.
1: Well, I think it's the pay it forward thing you talked about before in that sense that Roger, when he came up in Switzerland, you know, Mark Rosé, the 1992 Olympic champion, was a top 10 player then. Big presence, big personality. Rosé also worked with Pierre Paganini, the fitness trainer, before Roger did. And so Mark invited Roger to come join him for training. Mark invited Roger to come down to uh, the Davis Cup before Roger was on the team. and I think he was steeped in that Swiss Davis Cup culture and team culture of the older guys who already were established helping him out. So when it came time, when Stan came along, clearly a promising junior, he won the French Open junior title. Roger thought it was, I think, natural to help him out. But he went kind of above and beyond. I mean, to be able to say, hey, you're coming up. You can use Pierre too, and obviously he had to give the green light to that and share that. Stan was not a threat to him at that point, um, <laughs> but that's still a pretty big thing to do. Not a selfish move at all. That also is something, if you're going to be part of the ecosystem, help the ecosystem thrive and have loyalty to your coworkers, and he's done a lot of that.
0: It's a lovely quote that you have in the book from Stan Vavrinka, talking about what he learned from Roger. A universal truism to keep in mind, the importance of living in the moment. And Stan said, even when Roger has to do something he enjoys less, he does it to the max. So for example, obviously being out on centre court, winning a semi-final, those are the easy bits to enjoy. But the interviews late at night, the travel, etc. we have a propensity, don't we, to want to cling to the good moment, the equivalent of the semi-final wins at Wimbledon and push away the bad moments and rush to the next moment. But Roger has this ability, it seems, and this is what Stan was alluding to, to treat all moments somewhat equally. You get this mastered and life becomes a lot easier, wouldn't you think?
1: Yeah, that's a great point, Simon. I think I have to tell you that's probably the one thing out of all this process of – obviously, I've been covering him for so long on an incremental basis, but to go and really have a long, hopefully thoughtful look at him over this long period of time of writing the book of about a year of the process – and all those other interviews, that's what ultimately, I think, came to the surface the most was whatever you're doing in your life. And obviously, there are lots of things we don't like to do, you know, from uh, the daily chores to doing our taxes to whatever it might be. But bring a certain amount of intentionality to that. And also, you got to do it. I mean, you got to do the news conference if you're Roger. You, you got to hop on the uh, the flight and get the jet lag. You got to go and meet the sponsors who are helping to bring your bottom line up to where it is. Those are all things you got to do. And a lot of, a lot of tennis stars... Drag their sneakers over that stuff. So Roger had that advantage. I think he used this expression. "Yeah, I'm, I'm out there. I'm happy to be, do all the press, all the stuff, all the meeting, all the greeting, but then I need my time back away from that to recharge. And I think that's been the key. He's not probably intentional all the time. He may not be out there, you know, shoveling snow off his driveway in Switzerland with intentionality. I don't know if he is, but when he's <laughs> in those moments where he's doing his job professionally, or he's in a situation where he knows this is coming, he's going to do it. Then I think he excels at that. And that has been a real key to his longevity and his popularity because yeah. you're not getting a lot of surly moments. You're not getting a lot of moments where he sort of brings it halfway. He's pretty much all in and he's got a lot of experience in these areas now. But I'm always struck by what he talks about with the younger generation of players, too. He, he doesn't tell you about the advice that he gives very often, but he did talk about this once with me, which was interesting. He basically talked about it's really important for me. And I always tell all the younger players when they ask my advice, take care of your own stuff, understand your own stuff. And what does that mean? That means your finances. That means your team. That means the logistics of what you're doing. You can't do it all yourself, but you better understand how it works and you better dig into the details. This is a guy who went without an agent for a couple of years, you know, just when he first burst to prominence was number one in the world. I mean, nobody does that. <laughs> yeah, and People will go without a coach. He did that too, but they won't go without an agent to run the business. So he had his, his mom and dad and, And his girlfriend at the time, America involved in all those things. So I think there was a downside to that. They didn't get the money they probably would have gotten otherwise. For sure, they didn't. And it was definitely a drain. But it set him up for understanding this whole range of things in the sport and in his profession. The other players just couldn't be bothered with. And I think in knowing all the little details and the nooks and crannies of it and embracing that aspect of it, I think it's helped him to find the whole thing more enjoyable for longer.
0: Well, there's a few points that I want to grab out of what you just said, Chris. You mentioned tax returns, and I think the content of any moment changes, right? And obviously, tax returns is not as fun as playing tennis, but Mm. a moment is a moment. And if we're wishing away those moments, we are wishing away life, essentially. And, And Roger seems to... Have that equilibrium, whatever the moment contains. That was one thing. That's a very beautifully expressed thought, by the way. And I'm not just being nice. It's, I like that a lot. It's a good way to put it. Yeah. Thanks, Chris. So, for anyone listening, not just young tennis players, not just the next gen, for anyone listening, what advice would you extract from that for anyone in terms of taking care of your own business?
1: Well, I can also maybe relate to something you already talked about in this conversation, and that was your own experience at Wimbledon. You know, why do you feel so connected to Wimbledon? Well, it's clear because it's a great tournament, but because you started out working the bar and taking out the trash and you've seen it from all angles, right? I mean, obviously it's a rarefied world Wimbledon. So taking out the trash is a more pleasurable experience at Wimbledon. Yeah. than it I'm would not be sure about that. You get that view, you know, across the, yeah, yeah. across the courts and Hill and all that. But anyway, yeah, yeah. I guess your takeaway from that is know your ecosystem, understand it. Don't try to take shortcuts or, or try to just hop in at the highest level and think that's great it might feel great, but I think you have more appreciation for the whole thing that you're experiencing and it'll keep your interest longer. If you understand all the different rungs on the ladder, better yet have experienced a few of those rungs on the ladder and also really understand what that person, you know, on the other side of that, your office or wherever it is, is experiencing because you've been through it. You can relate to it. And I think Roger, when he looks around a tennis tournament, I mean, he was a ball boy, pictures of him posing with Boris Becker and Wayne Ferreira and those people. So he saw the sport from the beginning that way. And he definitely, when he was running his own show, got a good look at parts of uh, the portfolio that most players never bother with. And I think that connects you. And I, w- I would say in my case, I'm very grateful as a sports writer that I started out covering, you know, the lowest rung of the ladder was covering high school sports where I started out in the US. I didn't hop hmm. in and get to go cover Wimbledon right away or skip a step. I went, covered the high schools, went back to Same high schools that I played in in San Diego as a kid, went back and covered those athletes, interviewed them, you know, heard their parents rage when I screwed up, which I sometimes did, and got it very close to the source, and then used that as a base to build on. And I covered college sports after that. Then I went and covered professional sports, the NFL. Then I moved on to global sports, climbed up that way. And I'm really appreciative of that because I I think I got a a chance to see the business from many different sides, and I think that was uh, helpful to me. And I would say the same thing to anybody listening to this: take a page from Federer that way and. And try to see your whole your whole ecosystem.
0: And don't expect anyone to do everything for you. That whole attitude of don't expect anyone to do the little things. In his case, the little things are still booking hotels and there's still big stuff. But that attitude of don't expect anyone else to do it for you. And then you touched on him in terms of enjoying the attention when he wants it, but then needing to step back. The clenched fist metaphor enjoy the limelight, but then know when it's time or when you need to step back and recharge. And I think the six months he had off in 2016, for example, when he had that funny fall against Roundish, but he had six months off and I hate to land you in it, Chris, you thought he was done. But as we now know, actually, that withdrawing himself and doing what he needed to build himself up to recharge, actually to sharpen his saw, so to speak, was the best thing that he could have done. And anyone can learn from that.
1: Yeah, you're right, and I think to take full ownership of it, there was a fall, and we were all in the in press row there, and we all kind of gasped collectively about that because it was just unlike anything yeah. he'd ever done before, and he was at a stage there in his mid-thirties where it just seemed like the right time for it to be ending, based on tennis yeah. history. I didn't think he was done, done, but I thought he was. Days of dominance were over, and we yeah. were wrong. But I think the clenched fist aspect of it is it's twofold. There's the really long-range unclenching, which is that six-month break, or the Six weeks off the tour, really unwind, take the pressure off with these big breaks from the tour. And then there's the unclenching, which I think he was referring to in the interview is also on the daily basis. You're walking around, you're intense, you're thinking about your match. You got to unclench then too. And you have to find a way to really change the chip. It's obviously been easier when you have four kids on the road with you. You go back and you're with your kids. And there's that great story from Paul Anacone when he lost to Joe Wolford. Song guy goes back to the hotel or back to the house at Wimbledon. It's been five minutes since he lost. Anacone's going, what am I going to say to him? This is a horrible defeat. He was up two sets and he lost for the first time. They walk in the door, Roger's on the floor with his twins playing around within seconds of entering. Yeah. Chip has changed. So I think he's had some advantages there, but even before then he was doing things to kind of help himself unclench. And one of the big things that he did, and it was unusual I thought for big time tennis players from my experience anyway, at that time, this is the early 2000s was he decided to kind of get out of the player hotels, and get out in the cities that he visited and see them. And a lot of these players, traditionally anyway, you're kind of in a, in a bubble. And obviously, that's a different word now than it used to be. But you're in a situation where you're really locked in, fully focused on the matches and the game and the whole thing. Roger always felt, or from an early age, it was important to break away. And I don't think it's just because someone told him that. I think it's because what he felt is what he needed. Get stale if he was around too long and get uptight. Because he's obviously, he's a very emotional person. You can see it after yeah. the matches now and those big moments of his career. But if you go back and look at the early videos and talk to people about him in that early phase, huge amounts of volcanic activity inside of him mm, and a huge yeah. amount of nervous energy as well. And maybe a pretty short attention span at the base with all that sort of manic energy that he has. So I think he's had to dominate all that and he's had to find out what works for him. And I think the idea of unclenching routinely and on a bigger scale has been very effective.
0: And one we can all certainly keep in mind, I think. And quote comes to mind of Rogers that you put in your book, I am laid back and can let go quickly. And that story post that defeat to Songa illustrates that. And something I've noticed speaking to athletes who have had children in particular is they realize actually that they can let go quicker than perhaps they had thought. Uh, Helen Glover, who's... A great british olympian and she used to beat herself up if she had had a bad practice for a day or two and then she had kids and she realized actually i can drop that whenever i want and i think this is something to understand that the degree to which we hold on to let's say grievances or disappointments or whatever that letting go is a choice and roger is an example of the quicker you can let go (laughs) the better it is for you
1: the other thing I'd say too, Simon, is interesting about this is um, I think all of us kind of get to that point in our lives a lot where we're just, Ugh, I'm done. I'm tired. I got to take a break. I just, I need it. take a break, whatever it is, on a daily basis or monthly or whatever it is. I noticed with him, maybe it's because of the nature of a tennis player's schedule, but I noticed with him, he plans for it. And I think I use the term in the book, planned spontaneity, which sounds sort of like an oxymoron really. But I think that's what it is. I mean, he's he knows himself enough now. He knows the rhythm of his life and he plans for the moments when he's going to be completely in the moment, <laughs> which is yeah. a strange concept, but I think it really works. I took that away from this process of researching this book was that. I know I'm going to need to be in the moment at some point. I, I, I like that. I want to be there. So let's plan for it. Let's find the time when that's going to be possible. And so it's not, not just that two-week vacation. It's sort of Throughout the timeline of your year and your life, you make sure that when those moments arise, you're ready for them. You're ready to meet the moment with the unclenched fists, with your eyes not straying and your phone not in front of you. I love
0: that, plan spontaneity. And uh, Cal Newport, who's written two brilliant books, Deep Work and Digital Minimalism, essential reading, actually, both of his books. And he talks a lot about that, you know, plan your downtime just as much as you plan your work time and I think there's a lot to be said to that because like you say it can be all too easy to just hop on our phones and that isn't downtime you may think it is but actually no. that you, you've still got your clenched fist I want to talk about something about Roger is that he has actually suffered a lot of disappointing defeats certainly from winning positions against his great rivals than Novak than Rafa and you know, When Roger is in full flow, he's out of his own way, I would describe it as. Those are the moments when he can even surprise himself. I remember talking about the, when he beat Roddick in 2003 in the semifinals, and he said, ah, I never knew I could play that well. And so he was out of his own way. But there are certain matches where you could see he was very much in his own way. The most obvious one is 2019, two match points. And you could see Roger seemed to be overthinking it, easier said than done to not do that but he was in his own head and as a result was rushing. There was an element perhaps of paralysis by analysis, being a bit passive, a bit hasty. Whereas Novak, on the other hand, he's learned how to get out of his own way. And for him often, attack is the best form of defense. So mm-hmm. just do you see what I'm getting at here in terms of getting out of your own way? And this is something actually I don't think Roger in some of the key moments has done that well.
1: Yeah, I, I think... You're right. I think when he's in full flow, it's almost an out of body experience for him to some degree. I mean, it's so natural and how unstressed his face is as he's playing, how relaxed he looks and how unusual that is for a tennis player. She says she don't think she'll ever see that like of that again, where somebody is that in his element, dolphin in the water kind of thing. But I do feel like every great tennis player knows who truly troubles him. And obviously, you know, Roger knew that Nadal and Djokovic were those guys for him. And so I think... That great out-of-body experience becomes much more in-body there, and it also becomes a situation where he presses, maybe even ever so slightly, but he still presses in places where he wouldn't normally press. And that little bit of contracted muscle or clouded mind in a sport where the margins are so thin and the time to really react is so little, that's just enough sometimes to turn these matches. And obviously, he's won plenty too, but I mean, he's lost more than 20 times from match point up. And I don't think, and Rafa and Novak, who have played fewer matches, but not that many fewer matches, are definitely in single digits than that one. But maybe deep down, that little bit of emotional fragility that he has, that he's had to conquer to be the player that he wanted to be, that can just slightly surface and create a little bit of doubt. We're talking fine lines here.
0: Yeah, yeah. The fine yeah. lines are
1: what separate those guys ultimately at the end. I mean, Novak's a hell of a player.
0: For me the little thing that's made a difference, the real difference is that ability to get out of his own way at crucial moments, to not get lost in his thinking, to play as if it was any other moment.
1: And also he uses the element of surprise very well. And he also maybe has understood himself, much as Roger understands this, the clenched fist and unclenched fist, Novak understands he's got to play a little bit against type sometimes when he's up against the wall. But that is now what he's able to do, go outside himself and find a way to attack.
0: Is about getting out of your own way, not getting held back by thoughts or fears and that ability to get around that. That, to me, is the most interesting aspect of Novak. Right, let's finish with the lovely anecdote. You spent a bit of time traveling with Roger on his private jet, got to see how the other half lived, shall we say, and then made (laughs) a quick change and ended up on a full American Airlines flight, sandwiched between two people, jostling for position on the... uh, with the elbows um, <laughs> and, you know, eating food off the tray and then got home and you had to walk three miles home at 2 a.m. because it was too late to get a taxi. And the contrast there between, okay, the seemingly charmed life of Roger with the private jet and then the hassled and harried life of us normal folk who have to travel <laughs> in cattle class, shall we say. But then you have this interesting line of, On the face of it, this walk home at 2 a.m., yes, it's a chore, but this is actually as well something Roger can never experience. So I just thought this was interesting about it can be very easy to think the grass is greener. Oh, I'd swap for Roger's life in an instant. And obviously he enjoys it, but actually it's not quite that simple, is it?
1: Well, first of all, the other 1% or the other one-tenth of 1% live, not the other half for sure. (laughs) That's a very good point. Here we are, just to get that straight. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had never been in a private jet before. I probably won't be in another one in my life. I went to cover his business dealings. It was all very journalistic, but it was certainly a moment I'll never forget. And for him, it's kind of his routine. They do it because that's what he needs to do to make his life simple and as friction-free as possible and to prolong his career and it's there. So for me, coming off of that, you can't help but feel a little heady after you go through that kind of experience and you're in that kind of proximity to this very prominent uh, source and athlete. And so I was already thinking it was quite amusing when I got on the plane. I usually really hate middle seats. I'm a little bit claustrophobic and I middle seats are my worst nightmare, but I was, I was almost like, this almost feels appropriate. This is my uh-huh. payback for what I've yeah, just yeah. experienced. I will be in this seat. And um, and the other thing I, I think about it was, you know, Roger, you know, for a guy who uh, can do what he wants basically and has the money and, and means to do that, he's seldom alone. I think he's almost mm. always with somebody, with his four kids and his wife and people around him. And he's a naturally gregarious kind of person. He's got his family when he's home. And so when I got back that night, realized I was going to be back at 2 a.m. It was past the time for the taxis in my little small town in New England. I had to walk back with my rolling suitcase on the side of the road. I was just cracking up thinking, well, here's the solitude he never gets to have. you know. And I'm not sure I would have traded that, but it was a sense of there is a price to pay. As we all know for that level of stardom. Roger yeah. deflates a lot of it by his personality and the way he is, but it is a huge imposition, one that you willingly take on. And when you made, made a billion dollars, it's, you know there's ways to compensate for that pretty well. But <laughs> yeah. but there is that, that sense of your life never being normal again. And I'm not sure walking at 2 AM on the side of New England road is normal. I literally was laughing out loud. So somebody thinking I'm probably insane if anybody had seen me against guys chuckling to himself in the dark, but there, yeah. there, yeah, well, there! I was him up. Yeah, not yeah, even yeah. chuckling. I was laughing. I go, this, yeah. a,
0: a laughing maniac walking down the side of the street. Anyone drove past you, yes, that would have been quite a an arresting sight. And this
1: is a country road, Simon. This is not a little <laughs> London street. This is a country yeah. road. So gravel on the yeah, side. Yeah. Lock your doors. Keep
0: driving. I think that's a lovely lesson to finish. It's very easy to. Look over the fence, as it were, and the grass is always greener. It's that classic one. But um, that really got me chuckling, that that anecdote (laughs) you told in the book. I thought it was a really lovely addition. And I just want to finish, Chris, by just congratulating you. You know, like I said, I ate this book with a spoon, as they would say. It went down very easily. No sugar required for this one. So, yes, it's called The Master, The Brilliant Career of Roger Federer. Your timing is absolutely spot on. I really am grateful that I got to read it without having a fork out because I would have paid, I promise you, Chris. But um, congratulations <laughs> on it, and it's been a pleasure to dissect some of the lessons we can take from Roger and, and our own lives for anyone listening. It's been a real pleasure, so thank you, Chris.
1: Simon, me too. I enjoyed it. It's great to talk to another tennis nerd and, uh, <laughs> in depth about our feelings, emotions, and the sport that we followed for so long. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode with Chris Clary. I hope you enjoyed it. Do get in touch. Let me know your thoughts as ever via social media at Simon Mundy or via my website, simonmundy.com. And while you're there, do consider signing up for my Monday on a Monday newsletter. Three nuggets to get your week off just right. That's it for now, though. Until next time. Thank you and goodbye.